It's Thursday, March the 9th, 2023, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While I have the uh, distinguished honor of that title here at Hoover, I'm not the only fellow doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, go to our website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Go over to where it says multimedia. You can see all of our podcasts there in front of you. You can sign up for any or all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers our best of our podcast to your inbox each and every month. My guest today is Leo Haniad. Leo Hanian is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at UCLA. He's also my partner in crime, my writing partner, that is, in an endeavor that we call California on Your Mind. It's a Hoover Institution web channel devoted to all things Golden State. Lee, great to see you today. Hey, Bill. Good to see you. Uh, I would note, by the way, usually Jonathan Mavrotis is uh, doing the moderating for these California podcasts, but Jonathan could not make it today. Uh, we will have him back uh, uh, the next time we do this. So, Lee... I was watching a TV show last night on the Science Channel, of all things. I have so many damn channels on my cable system, I don't know what I have. Uh, but I stumbled across this, and the title of the episode was Great Trains. And what it was chronicling was a high-speed rail in Italy. And what a marvelous system they have and all the cool technology involved and how wonderful it is to go from Milan to Rome and so on and so forth. And what it was, Lee, was a rather grim reminder, a grim reminder that if you want to see high-speed rail working well, working efficiently, working effectively, go to Italy, go to Spain, go to France, go to Japan, but you don't go to California. Uh, now, as coincidence would have it, you have written about uh, California's latest um, uh, in high-speed rail. Uh, give us an update on what's going on here. Yeah, but well, the, um, the California High-Speed Rail Authority came out with their latest version of their business plan, their 2023, uh, actually it's a 2022 business plan. It just, it came out um, a week or two ago. And the cost of the system bill is now up to well over $200 million per mile, over $200 million per mile. And, uh, you know, Bill, as uh, as I was researching this column that, that came out yesterday in California on your mind, I found out something that I had never known about about this, despite the fact, you know, we've talked about this a number of times. Um, we both have written about this a number of times. And here, Bill, here's what I didn't know. When voters, when you and I, voters agreed to pass a bond for nearly $10 billion in 2008 as seed money, it was supposed to be an 800-mile network connecting LA, San Francisco, the Central Valley to the coast a total tab of $33 billion. Right. What I did not know is that the business plan that was supposed to have been submitted to the state legislature two months before the election, in which the bond was going to be passed or, 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 or not passed by voters, the business plan was supposed to have been vetted so voters had an idea of what they were ponying up for, whether they felt that the $10 billion seed money, $33 billion for the whole thing was going to be worth it. Bill, here's what I didn't know. Um, so the business plan was required by law to have been submitted to the state legislature in September. It was not submitted until after the election. And when the business plan was submitted after the election, um, here is what the California Legislative Analyst Office found out. They found that the business plan was grossly deficient. And Bill, imagine, um, imagine 
approving a business plan that did not have any analysis or discussion about future funding. It did not include any estimate for a break-even point for what would be needed for the system to actually, you know, pencil out at a minimal level. Um, it did not include a discussion of the trains in any sort of detail. It did not include an allocation of costs across the different routes. It did not include a description of how they forecasted ridership or revenue. <laughs> and, and it just it just it just goes on, it just goes on and on and on, including no discussion of when of expected completion dates for environmental reviews or how risks would be mitigated. Right. So the business plan wasn't wasn't a business plan. wasn't a business plan. The, the the high speed rail was never a serious project, and you know you go forward another year in time when the plug could have been pulled with minimal damage in two thousand nine. And here's what the legislative analysts off uh, the legislative analyst office wrote: discussion of risk management is significantly inadequate lacking any description of mitigation processes or detailed consideration of many types of key risks. Few deliverables or milestones are even identified in the plan against which progress can be measured. There are inconsistencies in the proposed order of events that create, that create uncertainty. And Bill, what that last statement means is that the timeline within the business plan was out of order. Right. And it was a little bit like closing the barn door after the after the horse left. What what hit me was that this was never California high speed rail was never ever going to get off the ground. And 15 years later, here we are uh, without one train having left the station, without one route completed. And the state continues to forge ahead and just burn tax dollars. And. I, I view this really as a as a gross betrayal of taxpayers within the state. Right. So right now, what we're talking about, Lee, is um, that, so high speed rail was sold uh, in a couple ways to California voters. First of all, as you mentioned, it was sold with a, what sounded like a reasonable price tag. I think what you said, what, thirty two, thirty three billion dollars, which quickly uh, mushroomed to about forty billion dollars. But uh, the idea was, OK, we've made about a one fourth down payment with the bond, with the nine point nine million dollar billion dollar bond. Um <clears throat> But what you have right now, Lee, is you don't have the promise, a very interesting promise when it would, uh, first came up, the idea that you could take a high-speed train from San Francisco to Los Angeles and get there in three hours, which if you figure how much time is to fly and all that, it's kind of a, a trade-off. You think riding a train is just going to be a lot more relaxing than fighting through an airport and so on and so forth. But that three-hour model quickly vanished uh, once we got into the weeds of how exactly you'd build it. And then the idea would have to go through some municipalities and the question of switching tracks and slowing down to go through areas such as here in Palo Alto, where I live. So the three-hour concept quickly disappeared, Lee. Uh, what you have right now is, I think, what we'd call in uh, federal government parlance a, a demonstration project, which you always like to say about transportation. It's a demonstration project. And the demonstration project in this regard is a high-speed train that goes from Bakersfield to Merced. And no offense to those two towns and the wonderful people who live there, but that's not the same as San Francisco and Los Angeles. So 
Well, it doesn't match up. But at all times, Lee, I'm very curiously, cynically concerned about one thing, and that is show me the money. Uh, to mix our transportation metaphors here, I think the ship has already sailed for high-speed rail in this regard. To the extent that California could have received billions and billions of dollars of largesse and transportation money, that window is closed right now, and it's closed after the last election in a Republican House right now. Kevin McCarthy is not going to spend billions of federal dollars on high-speed rail in California, mark my words. So. California's missed, missed that window to get more funding. Um, you now look at the, uh, uh, the high-speed rail authorities going to the legislature for $10 billion at a time when uh, the state is running a large uh, deficit. I'm just curiously, how are they going to fund this thing? And actually, what is what is the latest price tag right now? It's what, $110, $120, dollars I think? Bill, no, <laughs> you know, nobody knows what the price tag is. What um, What's galling uh, is that these annual business plans come out from the high-speed rail the price tag keeps going up. Um, but Bill, tell me, how could you ever estimate a price tag when you have absolutely no idea when the thing will be completed? That's They, they have no idea. <clears throat> they want to go forward with LA to San Francisco, which of course is never going to happen. They come up with these price tags. So LA to San Francisco now is well over $100 billion, just LA to San Francisco, 520 miles um, but what's galling is that how can you possibly estimate the cost of something when you have absolutely no idea when it will be completed or what impediments will stand in your way? These are just these are just pure guesses. And Bakersfield and Merced, the the um, the expected cost for Bakersfield and Merced now exceeds the estimated cost of the entire system back in two thousand and eight. And the $35 billion for Bakersfield and Merced, of course, that's just going to continue to go up. Um, Bill, I did a little bit of uh, penciling, um, and here's what I came up with. Uh, Bakersfield and Merced, Merced is just 90,000 people. It's not, it's not a destination. Uh, but somehow, the Railway Authority believes that 6.6 million people will be riding that route. I have absolutely no idea how they came up with that number. Um, for 15 years, they've been making forecasts, uh, which um, which they do not describe in detail, which is which are not reproducible by anyone else. But Bill, suppose they even got those 6.6 million people per year. What I calculated is that the value that these riders would have to place on going on the high-speed train versus driving is somewhere around $1,000 per trip to make this whole thing pencil out. Uh, <clears throat> and who would possibly play, who would possibly want to spend an extra $1,000 per trip um, when you're saving maybe, maybe 40 minutes? Because the whole point of high-speed rail is you don't make a lot of stops and you have a long, you have a long distance route where you can really exploit the fact that the train can go 200 plus miles per hour. This is 170 miles, and this is one with several stops. So, Bill, I love your point about this is a destination project. There's no point. There's absolutely no economic point in doing this. Um, and I just wish that um, I wish the politicians would at least somebody would at least think, hey, we're, we're sorry about this. Um, but Bill, yeah, where's that $10 billion going to come from? And it's not, it's realistically, it's not 10 billion. I suspect it'll probably closer to 20 billion. 
And how do you possibly justify the taxpayers? Yeah, we're going to spend another $20 billion on something that we should be pulling the plug on right now. And even if you spent that 10 or $20 billion, you still need to find another $100 billion out there if if you want to complete this thing. And that's even if it's going to cost $120, $130, $140, $150 billion, wherever it goes. I would note, Lee, that actually there is another high-speed rail project underway in California you talked about. And this would be a high-speed line connecting Rancho Cucamonga to Las Vegas. And I think two things about this caught my eye, Lee. Number one is the cost. Um, if we want to call it reasonable, it's $10 billion. Uh, that's a lot of money, uh, but it's certainly not um, in the uh, in the level of what we're talking about for statewide high-speed rail. But secondly, Lee, we're talking about Las Vegas as a destination. Again, not to offend our friends in the Central Valley, not Bakersfield, not Merced, but Las Vegas. Lee, I think there'd be much more of an appetite for that line. Oh, absolutely, Bill. So you're looking at a route that's, um, that's substantially longer than Bakersfield and Merced. It's going to cost roughly 20, only 20% of the price tag of Bakersfield and Merced. It's being done by a private company, and private companies only do things if they can, if they can make a required rate of return to their investors. Las Vegas is a destination, and it's a destination for people who are probably reasonably happy not to have a car. Mm -hmm. So this makes an awful lot of sense, Bill, and they're going to start construction um, relatively soon. $10 billion is going to be a money-making enterprise, um, and it just, you know, it pales in comparison to what's being done with this government project. Um, and, you know, Bill, it's, uh, I went on to the high-speed rail website yesterday, and California's director of transportation calls it a game changer. I, I, you know, we've gotten to a point where politicians just will get in your face and just literally lie blatantly to you. Um, I wish taxpayers would wake, up to, would wake up to this. I fault the media at some level for not calling this out. The San Jose Mercury did come out with an op-ed, uh, I believe it was last week, um, arguing that the project should be terminated. Uh, and I believe a couple of other newspapers are now doing this, but um, this was never, this was never going to be something that took off. Uh, we're 15 years into it, and we're just going to continue to throw money down a, down a black hole. I think it ends either one of two ways. Uh, either Governor Newsom decides enough is enough and pulls the plug on it. Remember, when he first came into office in his first uh, State of the State address, he confused the heck out of everybody by indicating that he didn't think high-speed rail worked. And people thought, my gosh, he wants to kill it. But then he quickly backtracked and said, no, 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 I don't want to kill it. Um, but he could, in his second and final term, decide, okay, enough is enough. Let's end it. But I'd be surprised if he did. Which leads you really with one option, Lee, and that's to go to the ballot and do an initiative. And here it points you to 2000, uh, 2018's election in Proposition 6, which is supposed to kill high-speed rail. But this is a good example of how not to go about it. Uh, instead of being a, a discussion about how to kill high-speed rail, it was a, a conversation about the gasoline tax in California and what to do about transportation funding if you took away the gasoline tax. And that uh, that measure was defeated rather soundly. So I think that some independent groups going to have to go uh, to the ballot lead and kill it once and for all and find a way to keep the focus on high-speed rail and not get caught in the weeds of other California transportation issues. Yeah, Bill, great point. Uh, Proposition 6, um, I think that lost, it lost by a wide margin. I think it was something like 56-44, something along those lines. Got clobbered. Uh, that was the one where um, Xavier Becerra, who at that time um, was, you know, was, was not in D.C., was uh, he was working for us, supposedly. I think he had to rewrite the language of that, I think, twice. <laughs> um, it was 
it was it was politically scripted to try to uh, at least some thought it was politically scripted to try to uh, uh, make sure it was defeated. Um, yeah, that was a catch-all. That uh, that was not well advocated by his proponents. Um, I think high-speed rail would be a winner in terms of shutting it down. I just don't see how anyone, really outside a small group of those uh, those in the Central Valley, or perhaps they would just be as happy to see that go away and not have to deal with another decade uh, or another two decades of snail-like progress on that. Um, Bill, just as a final note, the Legislative Analyst's Office was remarkably accurate in forecasting what was going to happen. They discussed the fact that risks were um, woefully inadequately discussed, that there was no solutions or mitigations to the risks that were discussed. They were worried about the fact that there weren't future funding sources. These are all the issues that we're talking about right now. We're talking about funding. We're talking about the fact that it's so woefully behind schedule and grossly over budgets because of all the risks that came up that derailed this thing, no pun intended. Um, it is, uh, I think it's probably the best example of, of what's happened to California governance, and it illustrates just how badly failing our state government is, uh, is doing its job right now. Okay, let us now use a bad pun and let us turn to the governor of California where he has trained his attention of lately, and that is, of all things, Walgreens. This is uh, Governor Newsom's latest foil. Uh, the governor on Monday tweeting the following, quote, California won't be doing business with Walgreens or any company that cowers to the extremist and puts women's lives at risk. That's what Gavin Newsom said, and he ended the tweet by saying, quote, we're done. Here's what Governor Newsom was referring to. Lee Walgreens uh, earlier had announced that uh, was responding to legal pressure from Republican attorney generals in 21 states, including a handful where abortion remains legal, in deciding to partially halt its effort to sell the drug uh, mifepristone, pardon my uh, pronunciation, mifepristone. Uh, Newsom's office uh, was caught flat-footed by this lead, which is one of the interesting aspects of this story. This is kind of shooting from the, the lip the governor did. The office didn't really know what the details were, what it meant. Um, you had to fast forward 48 hours to Wednesday when the office, when the governor's office announced that California would be pulling back a renewal of a $54 million contract uh, with Walgreens that would have taken effect on May of uh, 2023. This is mostly uh, medication for prisoners, of all things, Lee. It uh, raises a couple of questions. One is if the governor really wants to take this fight with Walgreens deeper, uh, this could get very messy in this regard. Uh, California, in terms of its pharmaceutical needs, it has a couple hundred thousand state employees uh, um, who uh, who obviously uh, have medical benefits from the state. They would, in theory, turn to Walgreens for their prescriptions. Uh, another million and a half Californians are covered by CalPERS, Lee. Then you have 13 million low-income, 13 uh, million low-income Californians who um, get uh, drugs via Medi-Cal, Lee. Here's what I'm concerned about. Let's say Governor Newsom decides to make this a complete, complete morality play against Walgreens and tries in some way to get the state to take away all its business with Walgreens. What if you're a poor person in a remote part of California, Lee, and Walgreens happens to be your only local pharmacist? What do you do if Walgreens is out of the business of dealing with California? Lee, what if you're living in an inner city part of California? And as we know, during the crime wave of the past couple of years, Pharmacies have been hit particularly hard hit. CVS and Walgreens have been closing stores. I just kind of wonder if the governor has bitten off more than he can choose here, Lee. But then it also gets to the question of these kind of blue state, red state morality plays he's rather fond of. But your thoughts when you saw that Newsom is going after Walgreens now? Yeah, ab absolutely silly. 
so if assuming this, you know, if this were to go through, what Newsom would be doing is um, is harming Californians, particularly poor Californians. Um, Bill, if I were a betting man, I'm not. But if I were a betting man, um, all those people, all those women um, who would be affected by the loss of Walgreens, a service from Walgreens, <clears throat> I guarantee you that whatever whatever pharmacy would step in, that there would be a lot of hiccups, that there would be bumps in the road, and there would be people who would not get medications, <clears throat> birth control or otherwise, <clears throat> whose health will be negatively impacted by this. Um, so this is Newsom doing what Newsom does best, which is tilting at irrelevant political windmills and playing politics outside of California with states that he has no business with and engaging. Um, this is absolutely silly, in my opinion. Um, Walgreens is trying to protect itself and its shareholders um, from lawsuits. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they're trying to do. Um, they should be allowed to go about their business and they have to comply with laws in other states. Uh, they provide pharmacy services across the country. Um, I just, Bill, I just don't get this whatsoever, even from a pure morality play. I just don't see what the issue is here. Um, he has no he has no criticism of what Walgreens is doing within the state. This is all about his so-called uh, uh, his critique of Walgreens, uh, you know, bending to Republican bullies. Well, that has nothing to do whatsoever with California. Um, this will raise the cost of pharmacy services in California and negatively affect the health of Californians particularly poor people and <clears throat> ironically, particularly poor women. Yeah. You know, it's one thing, Lee, if the morality play is that say a technology uh, state tech worker can't go to a conference in Texas or Tennessee or Florida because we disapprove of the red state policies. Most Californians don't feel that. But if you start messing with somebody's pharmacy and their ability to get drugs, Lee, now you have touched their lives personally. So again, I just wonder if the governor really thought this through. And I don't think he did. And again, you witnessed by the fact that he announces this on a Monday and it takes until Wednesday until his office actually has something to announce in terms of a concrete change in state policy. Before that, all all the aides could do is just say, hey, we're responding to a bully. That is imperative, the governor said. So again, this is kind of the peril of being a little too tech savvy as a governor and having a little too much access to Twitter. And well, kind of like Donald Trump, just, you know, maybe just not thinking through something before you send it out for the world to see. Yeah, it was, it was a knee-jerk reaction. His A's have no idea what he's, even, what he's even talking about. And now they have to cobble together some type of proposed policy to deal with this. And meanwhile, you know, ironically speaking, there are 15 million Californians on, uh, on Medi-Cal, which is the state's uh, version of Medicaid. Right. Uh, people who are living either under the poverty line or really close to the poverty line. And they're just hoping against hope that they don't lose their they don't lose their corner pharmacy. And Gavin Newsom is 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 doing what Gavin does. Um, and sadly, people's lives would be better off if he didn't do so much of this. I really would. <laughs> it would be wonderful if we had a, uh, if his aides uh, started limiting his access to Twitter. Ironically, Lee Gavin Newsom might need to go to Walgreens because he was recently on a, quote, personal trip to Baja, and he came back and tested positive for COVID the second time the governor has tested positive. Um, this was announced on Wednesday. Uh, he will be quarantining for five days. The timing of this 
is kind of tricky in that uh, if I do my math right, if he's quarantined for five days, he'll be out of quarantine come Monday, uh, the 13th, which just happens to be when President Biden is in California for a couple of days. Lee, he's meeting with uh, world leaders one day. Then uh, I think he's going to um, uh, to, uh, to do uh, gun violence the next day. So in theory, Newsom might want to tag along with him. Lee, it also ties in when Newsom is going to go on a statewide tour next week. And this is what caught my eye as a recovering speechwriter, having written from speeches for a California governor in a past life. There is no state of the state address this year in Sacramento. Um, let's process this for a minute. This is a speech that most Californians don't pay attention to, but like the State of the Union Address in Washington, Lee, it's an annual ritual in which the governor gets up before a joint session of legislature and announces what he or she wants to do for the calendar year, sets priorities, kind of gently chides legislature saying, I want to work with you, but here's what I expect you to do. It sets a tone for things, and yet Newsom is not doing it this year. Um, now, it may be in part because the man does suffer from dyslexia, and so giving big speeches is complicated for him. He has to put a lot of work into it in terms of being able to read off the teleprompter, and I would not in any way diminish the difficulty of doing that. I can't imagine what that's like. But it shows one other thing, Lee. If you watch Newsom's progression as a governor, when he came into office, he gave a very early state of the state speech right after he got inaugurated. Ever since then, it's been sliding and it slid into late January, then into February, and now it's slid into March. He did last year's in the first week of March. And this is what got me thinking about this before he announced he wasn't doing this speech. It was early March. I was thinking, where is his speech? Um, I think this speaks to a couple of things, no pun intended, Lee, about Newsom and his California existence. Number one, the strange calendar that he lives under. Uh, it's worth noting that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was in California last Sunday um, giving a, a talk at the Reagan Library to promote his book. And then he was um, uh, the star attraction at an Orange County uh, GOP fundraiser. Um, then he promptly got on a plane, went back to Florida and gave his state of the state address. Uh, but Newsom didn't see the need to do one here in California. And I suspect, Lee, that might be a function of one thing, whereas Ron DeSantis is on a timeline where he will probably announce for president come June. He wants to give that big speech, get some national attention, set the pace in Tallahassee. Newsom, as long as Joe Biden intends to run for re-election, doesn't operate under that same cycle. I would argue, Lee, that if Joe Biden announced last two weeks ago that he was not running for president, Gavin Newsom would have given a state of the state because why? It's free national attention. Yeah, with um, with Biden apparently running, um, Gavin is uh, Gavin is looking at a path that um, seems somewhat amorphous. There's, at some level, there's nothing more for him to do in California, despite the fact that he's very early into a second term. And the reason I say that is that there's really no accomplishments he can point to. I mean, he can talk about how he was magnificent leader during COVID. Um, other governors could say the same thing about their states. Um, but he, uh, virtually all of his promises have really not turned out very well. He talked about a Marshall Plan for housing. Housing starts are about 80%, maybe even 85% below what he had promised. Homelessness is worse. Uh, housing affordability still remains a huge problem within the state. You know, as we talked about, you know, a moment ago, there's still 15 million Californians on Medi-Cal. And Bill, to understand what, to understand just how difficult life is for that group of people, Medi-Cal means a family of three earning under $41,000 per year. It's hard to fathom how a family can three can do that, uh, you know, here in the state. Certainly anywhere close, anywhere close to the population centers. 
um, wildfires, uh, flooding. You just go down the list. I just don't know what he would point to in terms of a in terms of a success. Um, so we you know it seems like it's a funny political situation for him now. Like you know, where is he going to go from here? Um, no one really, I don't think anyone expects anything from him here in California. Those who are um, are happy with him will be happy with him no matter what he does. Um, are we looking at him trying to think about um, a different type of office under the other than uh, other than running for president, assuming that Biden does not uh, does not decide uh, not to not to uh, run for a second term? Well, he has uh, uh, said he does not intend to run for the Senate in 2024, which would be the obvious lateral move. And I don't blame him because he'd be one of 100 senators with very low standing in Washington, as opposed to being the chief executive of the world's, what, fourth or fifth largest economy. That's a letdown. I think it's a White House or Buster him, Lee. But here's where the big speech is probably necessary evil in this regard. And let me clarify, by the way, there's still a constitutional obligation by the governor to update the legislature on the state of the state, just as the president does. It's just you don't have to give a televised address. You could literally write on a piece of paper, things are fine, wrap it around a rock and throw it through the window of the state capitol, and there you're done. Um, and you can argue that actually, given all the theatrics that go into these speeches, especially the State of the Union, maybe not such a bad thing to spare the public from this. But three things I think are missing here. Number one, it would not be a bad opportunity for the governor to get forward the legislature and give them a polite talk about spending, because the fact of the matter is they're going to have to sit down in the next few months and decide where to cut and where not to spend. They don't have a surplus now. They have a deficit. So it's a very different animal. Secondly, I'm curious as to what his priorities are, as you mentioned, besides uh, the obvious right now, which is that he wants to go after big oil in California in no uncertain way. So what else is on your mind, Governor? But then thirdly, and we'll get to this topic here in a minute, weather and storms and a heck of a lot of questions about governing. You know, Newsom is lucky in this regard, Lee, in that you know, media coverage of him is relatively light in California. For a governor to slip off to Baja for a few days and forget about catching COVID, but just going off on a personal trip, as it was called, while people in the state are still digging out from the last storm, still looking for help, still wondering what's coming around. I mean, much better for him to spend time in California talking about disaster preparation, flood preparation, and so forth, and so going off to Baja. Um, he could have really gotten crucified for that if he were in Washington. He would have been crucified for that. But there would be a chance to stand up and talk about Storms Lee and talk about things about water capacity and talk about various reforms. In other words, talk about ways in which California can be proactive rather than reactive when it comes to natural disasters. Yes. Um, Bill, you know, it's interesting. It, we have not had any investments in substantial water infrastructure for over 50 years. Um and you know, not, and there's no plans really that are going to be making or they're going to be moving the needle uh, for us in that regard. Um, you know, Bill, when you mentioned that he was able to go off to Baja for a personal trip, um, that was really under the radar, wasn't it? Yes. And so this reminds me of when uh, when um, you know you mentioned that he, this would have not passed had he been in Washington, and and it reminds me of Ted Cruz going off to Mexico. Um, uh, was it? Uh, I guess it was. It was last winter when Texas was having that uh, that cold snap, and they had the electrical failures. Uh, Cruz crucified when he was when he made that decision to go off. Um, so you know, we you have a um, you know you have a governor who um, you know people used to call Reagan the Teflon president. You know, can we call, can we call Gavin the uh, the Teflon governor? Well, that's a apt phrase for it. And again, just if he. Harbor's fantasies of being a president of the United States, 
this is not presidential behavior. You just cannot slip off for several days. Actually, a story that comes to mind is the uh, Marion Barry, the late uh, mayor of Washington, D.C., uh, famously got in this problem as well. I think he was at a Super Bowl in California for the Redskins, and Washington had a terrible snowstorm, and the whole city was shut down. The question was, where is the mayor? And the mayor was in sunny California at the time. <laughs> so so there you go. Yeah. So I mentioned, Lee, that Joe Biden is coming to California, and I'd be very curious to see if uh, what Joe Biden would do if he came to San Francisco, and here's why. Um, Tis the season in Washington, Lee, to triangulate. Uh, back in Washington, uh, we saw President Biden break with uh, his fellow Democrats uh, by supporting a GOP bill, rescinding a D.C. criminal code uh, reform that would have softened punishment. Basically, what it does, it would have lowered or eliminated mandatory minimum sentences for the likes of high-profile crimes like carjacking. Um, question for you, Lee. Are we seeing triangulation afoot in San Francisco? And I'm wondering if President Biden would think about this in this regard. Uh, you wrote a piece for California Mind uh, on your mind for this. Um, this is uh, San Francisco now taking a look at its sanctuary laws and the question of what to do with fentanyl dealers. So, Lee, is San Francisco suddenly triangulating its politics or am I just kind of imagining things? Yeah, um, I mean, we can hope. So San Francisco has um, very, very strong protections uh, for those who have, um, you know, immigrated to the United States without going through the normal channels. And uh, my understanding is that nearly all fentanyl um, that's sold within San Francisco is being done so by, um, by Hondurans who are in the country illegally. And um, one of the city supervisors has proposed to modify the city sanctuary law so that there can be more cooperation with immigration uh, control enforcement. And if this was done, the idea would be that these dealers uh, would be deported immediately. Right. Um, and to the extent that they're all from the, they're all from the same place, um, this could really move the needle in San Francisco uh, regarding fentanyl, where um, Bill, there's been twice as many deaths from fentanyl overdoses since 2020 as there have been from COVID. Um, roughly 2,000 fentanyl deaths, about 1,100 COVID deaths. Um, there's about 9,000 overdoses that are reversed using the drug Narcan um, by paramedics um, per year. 9,000 ODs that are reversed per year. Uh, that comes out to uh, about 25 per day. Um, just, you know, think about think about that statistic for, for a second. You know, 25 overdoses per day that are reversed. Um, it's just a horrendous problem. Um, and so I hope that I hope that the supervisor's proposal goes through because you it sounds like a no brainer. Right. I mean, these people are selling uh, a product uh, that is so toxic that as few as um, a volume literally of 10 grains of salt, a volume of fentanyl equivalent to 10 grains of salt can be fatal. Um, is tearing up the city seems like a no brainer. One would want to modify the policy this way. Um, and yet there's, um, you know, the piece I wrote describes that there's an enormous amount of pushback in response to this proposal. Um, there are advocacy groups talking about how the city shouldn't be in the uh, position to be deporting people. Um, and you think, well, if you're not going to deport someone for selling fentanyl, then, you know, what 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 is going on in that city? Um, so, Bill, I, I hope I hope the city supervisors pursue this, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried they won't. And, you know, if if by, you know, if Biden was going to be walking around the streets of San Francisco, uh, Bill, you know, it's not it is not a pretty sight. It is a um, it's an awful 
it's an awful illustration of human misery and really inhumane treatment. Um, San Francisco thinks, I guess, is doing people a favor by letting them be drug addicts on the streets and people have lost, completely lost control of their lives. Um, and again, um, a sad illustration of what's happened to the quality of governance and the state at the local level. Is there any signs leave this going to other aspects of the San Francisco existence? What I'm getting at is the city has for decades now um, been very fond of needle exchange programs, a very European approach, if you will, rather than cracking down on intravenous drug use, San Francisco will have people exchange needles. Uh, and unfortunately, you walk around San Francisco, and this is one of the things you have to watch out for, needles on the street. Uh, just as the local law enforcement's turned a rather blind eye at times to open drug markets and just the selling of drugs on the street as well. But is this just fentanyl driven or do you, or do you think there is a pendulum shifting in a larger regard in terms of drugs in San Francisco? Bill, every time I hope that the pendulum is going to change, it doesn't. So I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, you know, you bring up an interesting point uh, about needle exchange and uh, and how that is similar to European policies. What people don't realize uh, is that in Europe, even though there are things such as needle exchange policies and um, prosecution of drug users is different in Europe, but they do not allow people using drugs outside. They do not allow people squatting on the streets. Um, the whole idea is to move that away. Uh, and San Francisco, from that standpoint, has not followed European policies. Though there's a period of time where, um, you know, I thought things in San Francisco were changing. Uh, Chesa Boudin was recalled. Um, three members of the of the uh, school board were recalled. Um and there's still there's some you know grassroots advocacy groups uh, that I've been in contact with over the last couple of months, uh, you know, who read California on mind and who say, hey, you know what? Uh, we are really trying to reclaim the city and we're trying to get better supervisors in place. But you know, Bill, at the end of the day, um, you know, until we see uh, until we see the next election uh, and hopefully more moderate supervisors elected, um, I I don't see I don't necessarily I don't necessarily see those changes coming along. I have my fingers crossed, but um, uh, I, my hopes have been dashed too many times in the last several years when I thought. Isn't it obvious what needs to be done here? And sadly, um, what seems to be obvious does not get done. The city lead needs a very large conversation um, on several topics all tying together um, public safety and crime and drug use, as we're talking about here with fentanyl, um, livability, affordability of housing, and Lee, what to do with the downtown and what was once a very vibrant financial and business sector, which is now something of a ghost town after COVID and businesses not reopening downtown and office space going empty. So a lot of things for San Francisco officials to get involved in if they so choose. Oh, absolutely. The uh, the downtown area is um, is a huge issue for them. Vacancy rates uh, of commercial buildings are in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 percent now. Before the pandemic, the vacancy rate was about 3 percent. If you were a tech firm, uh, if you were a serious tech firm or wanted to be a serious tech firm, you almost had to have a presence in San Francisco. That That's no longer the case. Um and there's enormous amounts of revenue that's be, that, that have dried up because because the downtown area uh, vibrancy is is has declined so much. So it's a huge problem. Six point three percent of San Francisco's population left between uh, between 2020 and uh, between 2019 and 2021. Um, the largest drop of any major city in the country. 
Um, they lost you know billions of dollars in income, um, hundreds of million dollars in 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 tax revenue, um, reflecting fewer businesses, more empty office space, fewer tourists coming to the city, fewer conventions and conferences coming to the city. Um, there's a day of reckoning to be had, uh, and that day of reckoning is really very very soon. Um, there's a budget that they need to be thinking about. And the funding for that budget just really isn't there right now, at least to the point of the historical budgets they've had in the last couple of years. They're not going to be able to fund that. So they need they need to figure out how to restore business activity and tax revenue in San Francisco. Uh, and they need to do it really quickly. Final topic, Leah, that would be the weather. You're in Santa Barbara. I'm in Palo Alto. I'm looking at my window right now, and it's fixing to rain. It's going to rain here for the next couple of days. It's going to rain for several days. Actually, very funny, Leah, I used to live on the East Coast, Washington, D.C., where local weather people would just obsess over the idea of a snowstorm coming. And if Washington was forecast with an inch of snow, people would go to the grocery stores and shop in just absolutely panic terms, uh, selling out of milk and toilet paper in particular. I understand, by the way, getting a gallon of milk to get through the storm. Why well, need a 12-pack of toilet paper? I never quite understood, but you know, people hoard as they decide to do. Question, Lee, are you sick of the rain? And are you like me, maybe kind of sick of all the talk about the rain? Because just here in the Bay Area, it's all local news can do, just talk about the weather constantly, nonstop. Yeah. Um I mean, here in Southern California, um, we have had uh, we have had more than more than um, you know 100 percent of normal of a of a year's precip- precipitation, and um, yeah, Bill, we're supposed to get the storm um, tomorrow, and then I think another I think another storm or two next week. Um, Santa Barbara continues to suffer from um, from the lack of adequate storm drainage. Um, right. Despite the fact that we had just a horrendous debris flow and mudslide five years ago, where 23 people died and there was half a million, uh, half a billion dollars worth of worth of damage, um, so you know we keep holding our breath and keeping our fingers crossed. Um, and Bill, you know, uh, Newsom was here about a month or six weeks ago with the National Guard because one of our inadequate storm drainage debris basins had to be cleaned out after uh, after a january storm and um and i guess we needed the national guard to come down and do that and um and you know there are plenty of uh there were plenty of local politicians here with newsom for photo ops and um and gavin was standing at a point very close to where 23 people died and he decided to talk about um food insecurity <laughs> rather than the people who had perished uh five years five years before um so bill yeah i i'm uh, i'm ready for spring man i'm ready for spring and uh and and no more having to uh having to uh look at the look at the weather channel on my app uh on my uh, weather channel app on my phone uh every day to see uh to see what i need to do well, I'm ready for spring, too, because, you know, I do love baseball. But I guess here's what uh, bothers me about all the attention to the weather. And I don't want to uh, sound blithe and dismissive to people who generally struggle. Terrible things do happen in storms and so forth. And I, But I guess, first of all, Lee, it's just it's tailor-made for local news because you have downed trees and flooded roads. And it's it's tragedy. And local news just absolutely thrives on tragedy. But we just don't get these policy conversations we should have about how California should be prepared for the next storms, what we can and should be doing better. You mentioned, for example, bad drainage systems. This gets in the question of water storage in California runoff and so forth. We just 
just we never seem to have these conversations. We just move on to the next weather condition. Before we know it, we'll be back having conversations about drought and storms and so forth. I just wish there was somewhere in this state an adult conversation about what California should be doing better come the time it's presented with a climate problem like this. Yeah, you know, Bill, you mentioned um, you mentioned Gavin not not doing a, a state of the state address, um, and you know, I was going to, you know, I'm I'm glad you brought up the constitutional um, issue regarding, you know, he needs to provide an update and assessment to the state legislature, um, but you know, I would have loved it if he gave the state of the state and said, you know, here are the capital spending projects we need to implement, we need to implement now, and water. Uh, conveyance, uh, reservoir capacity, storm drainage, those are all things we need to be investing in. Um, Bill, every couple of years, the Society of Civil Engineers grades every state uh, regarding their infrastructure. And I think our water infrastructure, our uh, levees, dams, um, our storm drainage, I think we get a grade of a D. I don't know why it's not an F. Maybe they're grading on a curve and there's enough other states that are... (laughs) That are uh, that might even be a little bit worse than us, um, but um, yeah, those are the things that um, the Newsom and the legislature should be talking about, rather than um, talking about uh, what Walgreens is doing in, in other states. But that that conversation never takes place here. Um, schools would be another issue that we would need to be having a conversation about, but again, that discussion never takes place. I think so. Well, we're going to have another conversation in about three weeks. And you know what we'll be talking about maybe three weeks from now, Lee? Maybe a very deep UCLA run in the NCAA basketball tournament. Bill, it looked pretty good for the Bruins. Um, they lost, uh, sadly, one of their best players. He was uh, the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year. Probably a guy who's going to play in the NBA. I think he tore he tore his Achilles tendon. So I think that, that may have doomed the Bruins, um, their chances to go uh, deep in the tournament. But, you know, they have a couple of other guys that might be playing in the NBA. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So, uh, March, I mean, Mar- I love watching March Madness. It's always, uh, it's always an exciting time. Yeah, well, Leah, enjoyed the conversation. And keep up the great writing for California on your mind. Thanks, Bill. Good to chat. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Lee Ohanian's on Twitter. His Twitter handle is Lee underscore Ohanian. Ohanian spelled O-H-A-N-I-A-N. Lee underscore Ohanian. I'm on Twitter, too. My Twitter handle is at Bill Whalen, C-A. That's W-H-A-L-E-N at Bill Whalen, C-A. I mentioned our website beginning of the podcast. That is hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the latest in all things Hoover, news, commentary, research to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.